0: The, the, the Coase Lecture provides us with a really wonderful opportunity both to remember Ronald, talk about what Ronald's legacy is, and also honor one of our own faculty members who follows in, in Ronald's uh, great footsteps and who does wonderful work in, in the area typically of law and economics. Now, it's impossible to overstate the influence of Ronald Coase's thinking on American law and everyone who passes through the doors of this law school understands uh, what has come to be known as the Coase Theorem. Uh, and, and Douglas always reminds me that it's Coase's Theorem, right, rather than Coase Theorem. Uh, well, Ronald never thought of it as a theorem, it is essentially the idea that under perfect competition and zero externalities, private and social costs are essentially the same. Put in the more familiar way, the Coase Theorem states that in the absence of transactions costs, we should observe resources flowing to their highest valued uses regardless of their initial allocation. Now the, with the famous story of the Coase uh, Coast Theorem was that Ronald, when he originally presented this idea to the uh, law school, uh, to the law and economics workshop, It was roundly rejected by almost all of the attendees at the workshop then after dinner and drinks uh, and reflection uh, and disagreement most particularly by Milton Friedman all 22 members of the law and economics workshop decided at the end of that dinner that Ronald was correct uh, in his in his conclusions Uh, my guess is that probably wouldn't have occurred today I don't think any group of 22 faculty members at the University of Chicago would agree to almost anything. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it did then. So over the course of his career, Ronald challenged the increasingly mathematical, increasingly detached field of economics, and challenged economists and law and econ- economists to live and operate in the real world. What has become known as the Kosian world, where transactions costs are free, and competition is perfect, was really, in Ronald's words, quote, the world of modern economic theory, and one which I was hoping to persuade them to leave, end quote. Ronald recognized that the world is filled with messy transactions, with choices constrained, not just by budgets, but also by the design of the very institutions that we choose. Uh, Ronald invited us to live, and to work, and to make choices in the world as it is, rather than as we wish it were. And that's one of the reasons why his thinking is so powerful today, and it's also one of the reasons why people who come to the University of Chicago get such a great education and go on to be so influential, because not only does one learn the theory, which is incredibly important but also understand the limits of the theory and the way theory applies in the real world. And while Ronald did not invent law and economics, his ideas became the foundation for much of its development. Now, a recent uh, volume of the record, which is our alumni magazine, uh, reminded me how true and how how impactful uh, Ronald's work was. You read the remembrances and it's just a tremendous variety of people writing in different fields including you know for example Douglas Baird uh, Saul Levmore Jeff Stone and Marianne Case uh, not people who necessarily share the same worldview, uh, not necessarily people who share the same scholarly uh, background uh, but each of them recognizing the contributions that Ronald Coase made to their own thinking and careers and it's particularly fitting this year that the Coase lecturer is Richard McAdams. Richard is the Bernard D. Meltzer Professor of Law and Aaron Director Research Scholar at the law school. Richard holds a BA in economics from the University of North Carolina, a JD from the University of Virginia, went on to clerk for Judge Harrison Winter of the Fourth Circuit, and then practiced law at Morgan Lewis and Bacchius. In many of the ways, he's the ideal lawyer economist, which, as Dick Posner once suggested, means he's trained in the law, trained in economics, but has an insider's understanding of the law that comes from practical legal experience. Now, Richard's research in criminal law has been focused on what has been termed the law's expressive powers, its power to coordinate behavior to teach its adherents about possible risks, to change or update individuals' attitudes, and to cause individuals to change their future behavior based upon these updated beliefs. Richard's fundamental question is why do we obey, why do people obey the law? And while traditional economists would say that people obey the law because legislators make disobedience very costly, Richard's research provides a much more interesting answer to that question. The law, the courts, and legal enforcers influence our behavior even when they are not able to impose costs on us. So the law's expressive powers, not just its coercive powers, must be important. Now, Richard's air work in the area of social norms is among the very best in the field. He has garnered international praise, influence through his research and through his publications and as some of you know I asked Richard to do this lecture last year not this year and he was unable to do it and why was he unable to do it because he was in the midst beginning his service his two-year service as chair co-chair of our faculty appointments uh, committee uh, service which I must say has been tremendously successful now this delay has turned out to be quite providential because we can think of this year's Coase lecture not just as a normal Coase lecture, but actually as an early celebration for Richard, whose book, The Expressive Powers of Law, Theories and Limits, will be published by Harvard University Press this fall. And following Richard's lecture, I would like to invite all of you to join us in the atrium again for a celebration and reception. And with that, let me introduce Richard McAdams.
1: Thank you, Mike. Uh, thanks, thanks, Mike. That was very kind, and indeed it is. Uh, I, I, am, I am very honored to be um, giving uh, a, a Coase uh, lecture, and it is bittersweet for it to be the first one uh, after Ronald Coase's passing. Um, but uh, I, I look forward to, to seeing many more uh, in the future. Um, so yes, Mike introduced my topic very nicely. Uh, this is perhaps going to be the cover of the book, even. You can go on Amazon maybe and try to you know, sign up to buy it in advance. Um, uh, I don't actually know that it's ready. Um, I do uh, talk about um, I do ask this fundamental question, how does law influence behavior, which is often characterized as why do people obey law? though in some ways law will sometimes have unintentional effects. Uh, besides compliance, um, the standard accounts um, are in economics. Of course, deterrence, as, as as Mike just said, that you change the cost of behavior through legal sanctions. To a lesser degree, incapacitation—that is, certain sanctions such as prison—just render it impossible for a c- person to commit certain crimes, such as uh, bank robbery. Uh, both of these emphasize the importance of of sanctions to what the law does to behavior. Uh, even when law talks about uh, default rules, um, I think you know at at bottom the reason default rules matter, even though you don't have to opt into them or you could you could you know circumvent them, is because when you do opt into them, they're enforced with legal sanctions. Now, outside of economics, psychology and sociology give a different answer. And I think of this as the main competitor to economic explanations of of, uh, legal compliance. Um, It's legitimacy. It's the idea that human beings are socialized to defer to authority they regard as legitimate. Could be science, could be religion, and for many people, it includes law. And the psychologists and sociologists then spend their time Uh, trying to identify the characteristics of law that give it this legitimacy power and make people more likely to comply with it. So today's subject, uh, and much of my work for uh, all too long, I guess, has been uh, an alternative account uh, to these two standard accounts. Um, Accounts I call expressive accounts. Uh, As you can see, there's not one. There's really two, the expressive powers of law, not power. Law is focal point, and law is information. Um, These are based in economics. They are, I use rational choice assumptions, and then derive uh, from them some other powers that law has besides uh, its deterrence power. And in doing that, I I should say that my my work does not critique deterrence, it does not critique legitimacy. I assume that those uh, effects are real, But I also assume that this is an important enough question, how does law affect behavior, that we'd like to know all of the mechanisms by which law affects behavior, not just one or two. Um, All right. So uh, I also should say, if anybody uh, spends time reading legal literature and looking at the uh, literature that that talks about expressive law or, or expressive theories of law. I think of there as being four, at least four, distinct projects, and so my uh, my my book is not sort of about all of them because I don't think it coherently you could be about all of them, um, and I just put the four up here. Two of them are normative. My book is primarily, um, you know, a positive theory of laws' uh, effects on behavior, not normative theories. I do at the end examine some normative implications, and there's also a uh, uh, contrary I mean there's also a an expressive politics theory of law a kind of uh, you know political science uh, attempt to explain why the law has the content that it has by looking at the meaning that the law has for powerful political actors but my positive theory focuses on uh, uh, the explanation of behavior. Um, the uh, let me say something about what motivates this paper, I mean, or, or this, this, this project. Uh, there's a lot of uh, puzzling compliance, and I, it's not always with courts, but let me just use this as an example. Uh, both historically and today, there's, uh, there are courts that seem to generate compliance, even though they don't seem to wield the power of sanctions. Historically, maybe the most famous of these is the, the Saga Icelandic courts of medieval Iceland um, that existed without any executive branch whatsoever. So there was no bailiff, there was no sheriff. If you sued someone, um, the court had no way to compel them to be present. If you got a judgment from the court, the, there was no other mechanism besides uh, your own power to enforce the judgment, which raised the question, why do people bother? If, if, they were, if it was just a question of whether they were powerful enough to extract money from their adversary, why would they need to go to a court uh, and get um, a judgment? But apparently, the courts were doing something for three centuries, even though they lacked the power of sanctions. Uh, I I didn't mean to say 17th and 18th pirate, but 17th and 18th century pirates. Uh, Peter Leeson, an economist, has written a lot about pirates and uh, says that. Um, They used quartermasters for dispute resolution between pirates and the quartermasters who in some ways had as much power as the captain um, Was not just ordering people to resolve their disputes He was he was offering a way that they could resolve their dispute like an arbitrator But they were free to reject it and to go on to the next uh, dispute resolution mechanism, which was a duel Um, but people frequently went ahead and accepted what the quartermaster um, said. as uh, contemporary examples uh, Tom Ginsburg and I have written about the International Court of Justice which rarely has any um, way of sanctioning people who uh, countries that violate uh, its orders and yet we find um, uh, I think it was 68 percent compliance within a year for decisions on the merits. Um, you might also say constitutional judicial review is something of a puzzle where the court rules against a legislative or executive branch and thus a branch with no army and no, uh, no real money uh, winds up ordering around the branches that have the, the money and the guns and that seems somewhat puzzling. All of these are easily explained to, the, if you ask a, a sociologist or psychologist, they're all just evidence of legitimacy. See, it's not all deterrence. Um, my uh, project instead uh, offers other economic, uh, rational choice-based explanations for why uh, courts and other legal actors could generate uh, compliance with law, um, even though it's it's not about deterrence. So as I said, there are two uh, things I want to talk about. One of them is law's focal point. Let me begin with an anecdote of Levy Azor's 23 years of unsanctioned service. This is uh, a man in Port-au-Prince. Uh, Haiti who is uh, directing traffic and uh, he's wearing fatigues, but he's not a member of the police or of uh, the military. Um, Instead, I'll quote from the New York Times story from 2010 about him. In Port-au-Prince after the earthquake, driving is a tenth ring of hell. Picture roads overrun with tents, rubble, pedestrians and peddlers, tap-tap taxis, stopping suddenly, dump trucks, coughing black exhaust, 99-degree heat, few stoplights, no air conditioning, dust beggars, and angry drivers blaring horns. Now imagine a symphony orchestra, because that is exactly how Levy Azor treats what the rest of us experience, as chaos. Uh, no official entity has hired him. He is simply a freelancer with a passion for order. Azor, who works only for tips and refuses to join the police or military, has quickly become a symbol of hope, a whistle-blowing reminder of the creativity that blossoms in a stateless void. So the question is, uh, I would ask, is uh, why uh, did the PowerPoint just go off? Um, <laughs> why, why uh, um, ah, well. Hmm, I don't know. Um, maybe someone can give me a hand, but I, I can go on. Why, why do drivers obey uh, Azor? It's not clearly not because he is um, uh, threatening sanctions. It's not that he chases people down and beats them if they ignore him. Uh, nor is it, uh, I think it's not really legitimacy, in that if you, if you look at the, the literature on legitimacy, he doesn't seem to have the characteristics that would give him legitimacy. He's not selected by a process. Uh, He selected himself. Uh, We don't know how he makes his substantive decisions uh, except that uh, he probably favors people who tip better. And so those are not reasons that we would normally associate with legitimacy. Now what you might think is well maybe after doing it for 23 years he has this thing we call legitimacy, he becomes an authority, but then the question is just how did he get any Uh, legitimacy um, except by virtue of being effective for 23 years but how was he effect how was he ever effective before he had legitimacy if legitimacy is something you earn by being effective then and you don't have sanctions or legitimacy to start out with uh, then it must be something else and um, Thomas Schelling was uh, somewhat prescient in his 1960 classic on on the the strategy of conflict uh, when he wrote This, the bystander who jumps into an intersection and begins to direct traffic at an impromptu traffic jam, is conceded the power to discriminate among cars by being able to offer a sufficient increase in efficiency to benefit even the cars most discriminated against. His directions have only the power of suggestion, but coordination requires the common acceptance of some source of suggestion." Um, So. uh, you know, simple coordination game, the simplest possible coordination game, uh, illustrates, you know, what Schelling had in mind uh, that, you know, there, you know, you have problems in, in, that law is often concerned with, which I, I think of as cooperation problems, illustrated by the prisoner's dilemma, where the problem is people are selfish in doing the individually rational thing for the selfish individual is, is often collectively um, suboptimal. Uh, In the coordination game, um, it's not a problem of selfishness. Even if somebody only cared about maximizing the joint utility, they wouldn't know whether to play red or blue, unless something maybe, uh, certainly without uh, 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 communicating with the other individual, uh, they they wouldn't know uh, what to do. And for those of you who haven't Seen a matrix like this before? Uh, I haven't drawn, I haven't uh, typed up player one and player two, but the idea is that the uh, payoffs, the utility payoffs for player one are on the left of the comma, and and for player two on the right of the comma. So both players benefit from uh, matching at red or at blue, and both of them gain nothing from mismatching. Yet it's not obvious in one shot of the game without uh, without uh, communicating how you would. Uh, behave in this situation. This is the problem that uh, Schelling thought, uh, you know, revealed uh, that there are things outside the mathematical structure of the game that affect how people behave. In other words, if the payoffs don't determine uh, how you're going to behave then something other than payoffs will. He called these things focal points. Uh, He said most situations provide some clue for coordinating Behavior, some focal point for each person's expectation of what the other expects him to expect to be expected to do. Finding a key may depend on imagination more than on logic. It may depend on analogy, precedent, accidental arrangement, symmetry, aesthetic or geometric configuration, casuistic reasoning, and who the parties are and what they know about each other. So, uh, you know. Uh, for those of you who haven't encountered focal points before, uh, this—you know—suppose you were asked to name a number, uh, and to match the number named by someone else who was also trying to match the number that you named, and you can't communicate. Um, what number would you pick? Well, they are an infinite number of numbers, so if you're just going to randomly uh, uh, coordinate, you're going to have a chance of coordinating near zero. When he, when Schelling asked people. Uh, this question, a plurality of them picked the number one, 40%. So they did a whole lot better than random chance. Now you might say you know, is that because of something in imagination or something in logic? Maybe there's a logical reason for that. But his next example I thought was really nice, which is what number would you pick if by matching with this other person you would win an amount of money equal to the number you named? Well you don't want to say one, that wouldn't be worth it, really. So uh, at the same time, what, what other number would you pick? Well, a plurality of people pick the number one million, and this is before the era of who wants to be a millionaire. The point is, it does depend on who the parties are and what they know about each other. Coming from a culture that in which a million dollars is somehow more salient than you know a million point four million dollars or eight hundred thousand dollars, then that seems like the obvious solution. Now, in the prior slide, what was the focal solution? Are any students think that, they, that there was a, a way to play the game? Or could you just guess between red and blue? Maybe if I showed this to you again, and you thought about it, you go, oh, wait a minute. It's blue. Uh, now, maybe no one would think this, but I would guess that if I had 1,000 people play this game, that I'd probably get more than 50% of people playing blue. And they probably would match a little bit more on blue, just because of the hint provided by the color in the game. So this is the idea of, of focal points. And my, you know, my idea is that, first of all, expression can create focal points. Um, there's a large experimental literature on this. If you let the players in the game communicate, even very briefly, like a one-word from one word message from player one to player two, player one sends a one word message that says red, what do you know? Most of them will play red after that. So, uh, that is a way of making focal a particular outcome, is to express that outcome. It turns out that third parties can do the same. uh, I've done experiments, and others have as well. It's perhaps not at all surprising if a third party or even a um, a mechanical device points to red or blue, uh, then that will turn out to be a simple way of solving the problem, influence how people behave. And that, I think, explains why Levy, Azor, and Schelling's bystander in the intersection have the power to control, to influence behavior even without sanctions or legitimacy. They, uh, they, they are offering, they are making a, a salient, a particular uh, solution to this game of coordination. Now, of course, it's not the same game that uh, I'm showing here with red and blue, and this is perhaps you know, the, one of the most crucial points. Um, I think people, uh, when they see this, they think, oh sure, if there's no conflict whatsoever, the law might have this effect. But the law is almost never called upon to influence behavior where there's no conflict. It's always where there is conflict. Um, and this Schelling's point was to, uh, was to find the focal point effect in games that had conflict, conflict as well. And that's exactly what you see at the intersection where two cars meet. They are not indifferent as to which, which solution they pick. Each driver wants to go first. And so they, they, they agree they don't want to meet in the intersection in a collision. That is the degree to which they, have, uh, they want to coordinate their behavior. But they disagree as to which solution to use. They, they, you know, each one prefers the uh, solution where they go first and the other person waits. And yet, we still see in Azor uh, in Azor's behavior uh, that even where there's some conflict, if there is an element of coordination, then the expression can still affect behavior. And some experimental data supports that as well. The claim then is that legal expression is one of the types of expression that can create uh, focal points. Uh, law can be quite salient. Uh, it's not always salient, but it, it, when it is, it can. Uh, be a general purpose mechanism for creating focal points. Um, I, uh, I will say, of course, if the public is ignorant of the legal rule, it will fail to supply a focal point. It won't make salient a particular solution if people don't know what the law says. But that is also a problem with deterrence and legitimacy theory. If people don't know what the law says, they can't be deterred from violating the law, and they can't defer to the law if they don't know its content. Um, so a lot of the uh, my my effort then is to apply this um, to various uh, circumstances to try to argue by example that this is a, a, a common and pervasive uh, feature of law. Uh, traffic rules uh, are the obvious starting point. Part of me thinks, wow, this is way too mundane to talk about. Uh, but then um, you know a million people die a year in automobile accidents. So even though it's not a subject in some ways for law school. It is. It is uh, quite important, and uh, I think that drivers, you know, are influenced by traffic signs. I, I'm sorry. Dr- drivers tend to know the law both because they have to be licensed to drive and because there are signs that remind them of the law. So we might think that this is a good case for the uh, focal point effect of law, and. Um, we might think then that the traffic light, the yield sign, the stop sign, the, the one-way sign, all have some effect, which is just to try to stop someone from uh, having an accident. I mean, that that is has some effect beyond sanctions in uh, legitimacy. Indeed, coordination in some cases may explain much of the compliance uh, that we observe. Um, the uh, you know I've I've read about you know, stop sign compliance. And um, it turns out that, you know, stop signs, I mean, if you put aside the technical thing about people sometimes rolling through stop signs, stop sign compliance is pretty good. There's one place where uh, traffic engineers say stop sign compliance is terrible, and they advise against using stop signs. It's at a T intersection. It's fine to put a stop sign on the terminating road. People are probably going to stop there anyway. but. Uh, a lot of times, neighborhoods want to slow down traffic in their residential neighborhoods. so they, they encourage uh, the the the, the uh, government to create a three-way stop and put stop signs on the other uh, two corners on the non-terminating road. Those stop signs produce very ver- are you know have very bad compliance. And. It's hard to explain that with sanctions. The sanctions seem to be the same in all these cases. It's hard to explain it with legitimacy. But it is the case that you have much less reason to fear a traffic accident if you are on the non-terminating road, and you don't have a road crossing you. You have a road coming to an end. That person needs to slow down just to make a turn. If they're going to slow down, the focal solution is for them to stop. If they're going to stop, you really don't need to stop. So we take away part of the coordination uh, reason for your compliance, and we observe that compliance is a lot lower. Um, Now, uh, My argument at at this point is to try to say that uh, many disputes in the world can have the same structure as a traffic problem. Um, The the structure that I uh, am talking about informally is really two things. One is that the worst outcome for each party occurs where neither of them backs down. Um, So in a sense, there are no legal sanctions to ignoring the stop sign. But the crash that might occur in the intersection is a kind of sanction. It's just not a governmental sanction. It's built into the structure of the situation. And, And that is to say that it is mutually regarded as the worst outcome when neither party backs down. And this, the second element that's necessary here is that neither party can, with certainty, force the other to back down by making the first move. Now, there are cases where that happens. I mean, in traffic, if, you, if you're at a stoplight and you want to turn left, um, you pull into the intersection while there's oncoming traffic. And then when the light turns red, the, uh, the people on the other road are that you've moved before they can move. And so they will just wait for you to move. You can, with reasonable something approaching certainty, uh, force them to back down by making the first move. But in general, as you approach an intersection, this is a very dangerous thing to do. You could say, oh, well, maybe I can make the first move by just speeding up and just going you know, 100 miles an hour through the intersection. But that carries costs, So it's not the case that you can, with certainty, force the other to back down. The other person might be speeding up, too. Now, many uh, ordinary disputes have this structure, so I claim. Um, one example uh, is smoking regulation. Uh, I'm talking about the simple dispute between a smoker and a non-smoker in a public place where uh, they both want to spend time in that place, and one of them wants to smoke and the other one wants to not be exposed to cigarette smoke. Um, they can defer or they can insist. Now um, In order to make this argument work, I have to imagine that if neither of them backs down, something bad happens. Not a crash in the middle of the intersection, uh, but one possibility is just uh, a scene that they find humiliating and embarrassing. A shouting match uh, raises their blood pressure. It ruins their mood. It makes them uh, uh, look bad in the eyes of other people who are around. So, this wouldn't have to be the case that everyone regards this shouting match as the worst possible outcome. But if many people do, then for them, this has the structure like the traffic problem, or at least the first uh, element of it. The other is that the smoker can't, with certainty, force the non smoker to back down by lighting up. You might, I mean, or, nor can the non smoker, uh, uh, with certainty, force the smoker to back down. You might think lighting up would would be the end, but it's not, obviously. I mean, the, the person who is exposed to the smoke might think of the harm from smoke as being linear. And so they're not going to stop arguing uh, just because the smoker has started. They might actually escalate. And that's the whole point, is that you, you might uh, provoke the very outcome that you're seeking to avoid. So if it has this structure, then this non-smoke, the no smoking sign works like the stop sign, creating expectations that the favored party will insist, just like Azor Levy creates the expectation that the party he waves on will drive on. The stop sign creates his expectation that the non-smoker will insist when the sign says no smoking. And the best response to that for the smoker is to back down, given that the worst outcome occurs when neither of them back down. A third possibility, rich with 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 examples, but I'll, I'll be somewhat brief is property disputes. And here, I might imagine that instead of a car accident, we'll just use violence as the possibility uh, that occurs if neither side backs down. There's a large scholarly literature on the fact that violence is often uh, a self-help remedy to enforce informal norms, or it's a person's reaction to being dishonored. Um, And of course, media stories about shootings for things like breaking in line or Uh, talking in the movie theater. So even though it is a very low level risk uh, when we talk about these kind of disputes, it's not zero. So it's the worst possible outcome uh, for property disputes if the amount at stake is not you know uh, enormously large. Um, So property disputes uh, may have this uh, structure if the cost of fighting or the expected cost of fighting is greater than any expected benefits, and neither can with certainty end the risk of violence by moving first. yeah, you can walk up behind the person before the dispute really exists and shoot them in the back of the head. that will work, but for the most part um, you know the the, the, the the problem is that each side is trying to manifest its willingness to um, insist on its uh, on its claim uh, while uh, you know, to the other one, which is kind of uh, giving them notice of of the conflict and removing the opportunity for either side to kind of uh, to, to move first and and end the dispute. Um, now, let me uh, digress slightly here and away from human beings um, uh, and talk about uh, the blockhead fish experiment, which. Um, I did not do, but I, I think it's uh, interesting for people who study um, property. Uh, it's uh, The blockhead fish, um, I think, is not a particularly smart fish. Um, and, uh, and so these, these biologists uh, a few years ago did this experiment. And they put two, these, these male-female pair of blockhead fish, two pair, into an aquarium at separate ends. They began by putting uh, an opaque barrier in the middle of the aquarium so that the fish each had half of the aquarium and they couldn't see each other. And the, the, the pairs would then you know, develop some territorial attachment to their side as well as the little cave structure in the aquarium. And the experiment consisted of removing the opaque barrier and watching what happened. And in one half of the, uh, in one, uh, Condition was the low, no landmark condition. They just removed the barrier. The the bottom was this sort of, you know, gravel that didn't, you know, have any markings on it. And what they found was a whole lot of fighting. And after uh, an hour or so, in 14 of the 15 cases, one pair of fish had driven the other pair of fish to the surface, which is complete surrender because they're bottom feeders. Um, so what happened in the other condition, the landmark condition, when they left, uh, when they removed the opaque barrier, um, there was a little uh, line of rocks at the bottom, which kind of where the, where the bottom of the opaque barrier had been. They didn't go up above the gravel, so there wasn't a wall. It was strategically irrelevant. But symbolically, it just was a landmark that divided the aquarium in half. And the answer was that none of the 15 pairs were driven to the surface uh, in that condition. That uh, in 92% of the time, they stayed on their own side of the aquarium with very little fighting. So uh, uh, um, uh, as the authors say that this confirms field observations that um, uh, you know, even blockheads respond to symbolic boundaries. This uh, confirms field observations of uh, territorial individuals. Many of these are birds. Set their boundaries at conspicuous uh, features of the landscape. So, um, you know, if uh, if animals without a lot of reasoning ability or uh, are able to, um, uh, you know, uh, have their behavior be so dramatically influenced by symbolic, you know, strategically irrelevant features of the environment, then uh, I think it it captures what I'm, I'm imagining here. That law can do that. Legal boundaries um, provide, have have some of the same influence. Obviously, in property, the ad uh, solum rule incorporates this idea. That's sort of what the blockheads were following. You know, like uh, this is this is uh, this is my part of the aquarium, and, and it's sort of like uh, our rule that if you own some land, you own the space above and below the land as defined by the borders. And we might imagine the law, you know, cap, you know, is is in this case. Um, using something that is already focal in a way and is influential on behavior in part because it's exploiting the focal point and then to the extent that it you know extends this rule uh, to more complicated disputes it's it's still able to influence people by offering a focal way of, uh, of who you know should insist uh, a, a when there's a dispute uh, about property. Now humans also use uh, Conceptual rather than physical boundaries, so the exceptions to the ad rule from, from nuisance and zoning may uh, may be able to influence behavior if if they're sufficiently salient to people, so that they know, you know who is waived on and who is who is told by the law to uh, concede. Uh, then then they could um, you could then then that property rule uh, could have a focal point effect uh, as well. Uh, treaties. Um, may not need third-party enforcement uh, if if the treaty creates um, what is a, a mutual a mutually uh, a focal point uh, that may be uh, the purpose most obviously for standard-setting treaties. If you're, um, you might imagine a certain amount of cooperation emerges without any kind of law, any kind of treaty. But at some point, things become like air traffic control. Things are quite complex. You write down what the method for coordinating is. What you write down then ha- it becomes the focal point, and you expect the other person to do what you've agreed to, even though there's no external enforcement. Because, um, well, air traffic control, you're trying to avoid the worst possible outcome, which is miscoordination. Uh, um, uh, there are uh, there'd be a lot to say about what I'm calling cooperation treaties, but. Um, Again, you might imagine there's a, an iterated prisoner's dilemma between nations, that which to some degree they're able to solve. That would be things like, you know, uh, tr- giving appropriate treatment to each other's diplomats or prisoners of war. Fairly easy to achieve because, you know, you each have hostages from the other. So, you know, I can retaliate against your mistreatment of my diplomats by mistreating the diplomats that I, that you have sent to my country. Um, but there could be uh, uh, ambiguities at some point about precisely what these diplomats are entitled to. What does diplomatic immunity entitle them to? What are the conditions when they can be expelled and 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 treated by process of law and so forth? So, uh, in other words, there is a need to coordinate on the precise meaning of cooperation. And and uh, and we do that. We write it down in treaties, and then those treaties are. Uh, are, are the focal point uh, solution to our long-term cooperation problem. Um, another, I guess, along, along the same lines, um, uh, the law will sometimes codify custom. And by codifying it, uh, it, it you know, can cause people to uh, behave slightly differently. People are already uh, obeying a custom but, had, but run into some ambiguity, for example, Suppose you wonder if the flag is uh, soiled, and I want to dispose of it. You know, should I bury it or should I um, burn it? Well, this is a perfect kind of coordination problem. You want to do the thing which others regard as showing respect, um, and you, you know, there might you might make a mistake here. And uh, depending on, on uh, regional variation or or change in the you know maybe the flag burning of of a certain time period by people who are protesting the United States suddenly changes the meaning of uh, burning the flag in order to show it respect. So there's this strange statute for uh, US Code sections 5 through 9, which describes itself as a codification of existing rules and customs pertaining to the display and use of the flag, and just sets out what one should do in order to show this kind of honor. And then it's, uh, it's, it's self-fulfilling. One uh, then shows honor by following uh, what this rule is, which is what most other people will do, and how they will interpret what you do. A more important example may be the Lieber Code from 1863, uh, was the first comprehensive uh, codification of the rules of warfare, and um, uh, it was. There are lots of things to say about it. I just picked out one example, which I thought was kind of interesting. If you're thinking about uh, the coordination function of law that the Lieber code, it has a, uh, actually just, first of all, it just descriptively says it is customary to do the following thing. And you might wonder why, why is it saying that? Well because it, it's, it's useful information to shape behavior if people are trying to coordinate and you're telling them this is how lots of people coordinate. Um, and uh, you know it's uh, customary at the time to use Designate by certain flags, usually yellow, the hospitals and places which are shelled, so that the besieging enemy may avoid firing on them. So whether or not uh, the the, uh, the countries want to refrain from shelling the other side's um, uh, hospitals is not a function of the law in this account. It's just it it just can emerge as a form of cooperation in an iterated prisoner's dilemma. But then again, you have this issue of how do we coordinate um, on on the the method of of, uh, uh, cooperation. If we make mistakes and we shell each other's uh, hospitals, um, we need to know whether it's plausible that it was an accident or not. And it helps to have some some precise way of signaling that. Um, uh, Social movements are are able to benefit uh, from law and in a way uh, that exploits the, the focal point power. Um, again, imagine that smokers and non-smokers um, are seeking to coordinate on where to insist on their uh, getting their way without causing um, a scene. But imagine that non-smokers in 1990 become very unhappy with, with the fact that they're uh, are lots and lots of places where the norm is to defer to smokers. They would like to change the norm. How do they do that? Well, uh, collectively, they could do that if they could uh, produce a lot of confrontations with, not, with the smokers that produce a lot of these uh, outcomes that are, in, that are quite undesirable. They're shouting matches or, or such. But if you were to sacrifice for a time to do that, then eventually the smokers would back down. Um, But if that's the case, coordinated confrontations would be more powerful than uncoordinated confrontations. I can think of at least two reasons why. There might be strength in numbers. There might be um, situations where if you're one of uh, many non-smokers, you find it easier to engage in the confrontation than if you're the only one. Uh, And pick your battle, it might mean that you know you're you're willing to do your share, but you don't, you're not really a complete uh, fanatic. And so you really don't want to have more than, say, one of these ugly shouting matches a month or a week. You have to pick your battle. And, and so if, if g- given these issues, there could be some advantage to coordinating. One solution is that law identifies particular locations of non-smoking. In the early stages of, non- of these laws, they would often just require restaurants to have a non-smoking section. The advantage of a non-smoking section is that it allows non-smokers to coordinate by sitting there. That is, the smokers may be indifferent at first where they sit. The non-smokers flock to the non-smoking section. The non-smoking section now provides some strength in numbers, and they're more uh, likely to confront the smokers who try to smoke there. Um, If the law says no smoking in uh, public buses, then you know, or, or bus depots, then uh, the person who's going to pick their battle now knows, OK, I'm going to be a jerk about this once a month, uh, but I'm only going to be a jerk about it in buses or bus depots. And then if there's a concentrated effort by non-smokers in this way, then they may change the norm in that area. The law then offers them a way of coordinating their resistance. Now. Admittedly, I'm not. Go- I, I am more than halfway through, um, but I did put this in here to say, um, you know, it's time to wake up. If you gave up on the focal point theory a little while ago, <laughs> I've got another theory for you now, um, and it's 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 actually a very uh, simple one in a way. I think the the first one is is uh, if if you haven't really studied coordination games is is uh, a, a bit more complicated. This one just says that there might be informational content to law and people might then observe the law, update their uh, beliefs in light of the information that law provides and the, the new beliefs might create incentives to behave differently. Um, I, I would like to point out that deterrence is an information theory. Um, when we say, why, why is it that the imposition of sanctions on A at time one Will deter wrongful conduct by B at time two what, what what is the reason why does why does b care about what happened at time one to a different person? The potential wrongdoer is supposed to infer that the enforcement actions at time one predict enforcement actions of time two. maybe they tell us something maybe the enforcers are the same at time one and time two, and this is revealing something about their motivations their 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 budget their capacity so uh, My um, uh, idea is simply that law might uh, reveal information besides, um, or law enforcement might reveal uh, information uh, other than uh, uh, deterrence. Um, So what else might it reveal? Well, one possibility is that it signals uh, uh, attitudes, public attitudes, that uh, if legislation tends to be correlated with public attitudes, then it is evidence of those attitudes. The smoking ban might reveal. Uh, uh, beliefs, uh, 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 the legislator beliefs about public disapproval of public smoking. Especially, if you think about, you know, a municipality um, in 1985 passing a ban on smoking, for many smokers who are, have been smoking for decades and used to complete deference to it, it must have been a rather dramatic wake-up call of information that, that it was easy to sort of ignore uh, before the law any changes that were going on to think that someone was just being a jerk if they objected to your smoking because you'd grown up in a society that found that OK. The, but the law it, it being enacted tells you that the legislatures must think that this has, there's more popular disapproval of smoking than you had thought. Now, um, this is based in part on legislators having expertise in public opinion. Um, it, might only apply to certain subsets of law. I mean, there are plenty of areas of law where we don't think that the public, uh, the, the the popular thing is being done through the law. But uh, those tend to be mostly low salience. That is, it's easier for minorities to capture uh, uh, the legislature and get what they want if it's a low salience thing, like a tax, uh, you know, a bill uh, writer or something like that. Those are unlikely candidates for any kind of informational effect anyway. The only uh, kind of legislation that would have an informational effect would tend to be that which is covered by the media. If it's high salience, then it tends to be something where the legislators are more afraid of bucking public opinion. So the law might then be well correlated with it. And this seems particularly true uh, when the, uh, the, the law is um, um, Opposed by some concentrated industrial interest, like in the early days of smoking bans, uh, the tobacco industry tried to stop them. And so when the tobacco industry was defeated, then that was particularly strong evidence that the public was in favor of these laws. Um, why might uh, that affect uh, uh, behavior? Um, you know, people might care about disapproval both for instrumental reasons and because they value. Uh, approval or esteem uh, in, intrinsically, um, so the they're updating their beliefs about this might might change their behavior. Um, I'll just mention this one example: Funk, two thousand and seven study. She studies um, the repeal of some symbolic laws mandating voting in certain cantons in Switzerland. And uh, I say symbolic. There there was a fine, but the fine was um, something had been set many many years ago, and it was. One Swiss franc, and it was so low that it was—it uh, seemed uh, it seemed fairly obvious that the cost of voting was higher than the fine for not voting. Uh, yet the repeal of these laws uh, decreased voting, and and so the 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 attitudinal theory would be that it it signaled people that there was less disapproval of shirking on voting than there had been at one time in the past. Uh, less concern uh, that this is something that your neighbors will think uh, is your obligation uh, to do. What else might the law reveal? Uh, It might reveal information about the risks and benefits of regulated behavior. A smoking ban could reveal beliefs about harm. Um, The argument here is not that legislators are experts, have any expertise in the scientific evidence, but rather it's simply that they aggregate their information on harm by voting so that uh, the voting of a large group contains more information than uh, the individual observing this would otherwise uh, have and uh, you know in in, uh, a model uh, uh, that I wrote with uh, uh, Dhammika Dharmapala here um, you know we examine legislators voting strategically and find for various reasons that strategic no votes are more likely than strategic yes votes. So, if the law still passes, then it really is evidence that, um, that, that, that the uh, individual legislatures were, uh, in, you know, uh, believe that the behavior they're banning is harmful. Um, I want to mention uh, spillover effects and exp- or expressive externalities because I said at the beginning this isn't all about compliance with the law. Um, I would, you know I, I think I'll just use this drug legalization example. I think the you know one of uh, there's a lot to be said for uh, decriminalizing drugs. Um, one of the um, unintended consequences might be that you would send some some signal uh, uh, of both attitudes and harms that you'd be signaling that you know these drug use is way more popular now. There's much less disapproval, and on the other hand, that the, the people who've thought about this don't really think that it's that harmful. Those might be uh, signals you'd like to not send. Uh, at the same time that you're ramping down uh, the criminal prohibition of, uh, of of the drug war. I mean, of of dr- of certain illegal drugs. Um, in Portugal, they, they, uh, they you know, I, I interpret what they did a few years ago, where they made a strong move towards decriminalization. At the same time, they created this complicated um, committee that you know, if you are found in possession of a certain user uh, amount, you, you get a ticket. You know, you're not going to go to jail. But you also get told that you have to report to like, this local committee that has like, a psychiatrist on it and a social worker on it. And as far as I can tell, you, know, you can basically ignore everything that committee has to say. Um, but, but I think the idea might just be to kind of you know, make it seem like the send a counter message. At the same time, we're decreasing the criminal sanction, we're trying to also send the signal that, no, there's something seriously dangerous and wrong about using these drugs. So uh, that, that's, a, I think, attention to potential spillover effects. Um, uh, I have here the stand your ground law which I, I think is the the controversy uh, about this law I think uh, I'll just I'll just say this uh, without explanation I think it makes no sense um, uh, if you just focus on the substance of the law that, it had, not, that it had nothing to do with the Trayvon Martin George Zimmerman case I do think though that this law sends a, a surprisingly strong um, a, a message that uh, there's public approval of using deadly force in cases where it's not really necessary, um, um, in cases where it's sort of borderline at best and that might actually produce more questionable um, uh, killings uh, even though uh, it didn't have anything to do with that particular case uh, I think that may be why people focused on it uh, to the extent they did. Um, well, legal compliance is never perfect. And uh, uh, the, um, the, the, uh, the, I try to spend some significant time uh, talking about the limits of, of all of these effects. Obviously, the focal point effect requires a particular structure of a situation that uh, many people who, uh, in, in the legal literature, are extremely fond of making claims about the law sending a message, a good message, a bad message. It, it's it strengthening stereotypes or something, uh, without any effort to uh, kind of uh, I- explain uh, what their what their theory of expressive effects is. And clearly, the the, the focal point theory has has a variety of conditions, um, and and uh, the the uh, you know this information theory. I'll just give an example of what I think is a bad use of this kind of argument. Je- you know, I'm I'm not a fan of gender-based peremptory challenges, but There's this longer quotation in this in this case where they make it seem that gender-based peremptory challenges are going to have some effect on the way that people think about men or women, and um, and I find that you know like I guess anything's possible, but you know it it does not bother to stop and say that you know most people don't know what peremptory challenges are. Most people who are sitting in a courtroom don't know when a person is, is being struck for a peremptory challenge versus for cause. If they know it's a peremptory, they don't know why. The only way they might think they knew was why is if the, the jury was all male or all female. And yet, this rule doesn't stop us from having all male or all female juries. We do. Um, and so you know th- this rule wasn't, wouldn't stop that. But it does stop a person from striking a single individual Because you know they were of a certain um, characteristics, one of which was a a certain gender, and I I don't think that's really sending any any message uh, uh, that anyone is actually going to hear. So, uh, I conclude. So, I didn't (laughs) spend much time talking about the limits. I really uh, do in the book because I do kind of chastise various courts and some academics for just uh, relying too easily too easily making these kind of uh, expressive arguments. And my hope is that uh, by, by uh, developing the theory, we can uh, limit claims to when it's, it's uh, more plausible. Uh, but in conclusion, any economic model of law, I think, should consider uh, routinely consider how law influences behavior in ways other than the threat of sanctions. That is all. So,
2: to continue your, on your last sentence of recognizing the limits, can we go back for a moment to the uh, fish example? What kind of fish was it? It blockhead. blockhead. So, you know, it, it struck me, the reason I want to go back to that, because it struck me as the kind, well, I believe that that's what happened in the experiment. It takes an awful lot of experiments with many kinds of fish and creatures to get this one, this result. It's distinct because you got this and, you know, could fish, you know, eliminate the barrier and they'll start fighting? And even maybe even the blockheads, after an hour of recognizing the expressive effect of the boundary, eventually, you know, battled over the uh, terrain. And so it really raises the question of, the question I want to ask is, how come and how often are these things, uh, do these things happen to be taken completely seriously? You had to run a thousand experiments to get one. Example. Hypothetically, would that, Tell you that there is no expressive effect, or how do you figure out the importance of the theory? I'm not saying this to, to doubt the importance of the theoretical breakthrough that your your account develops. I, I think it's fascinating, but I'm trying to figure out how much you want to get.
1: Um, I mean, I'll I say two things. Just for the fish, I mean, um, you know, I, I, th- I thought it was an interesting result, and uh, I. I I, uh, maybe should have talked about one of my experiments on human beings, um, which I actually took out because um, it was. uh, I I just I thought this was a sort of remarkable um, result. Now I don't know. Now when you say, is it just one out of a thousand that they try? I mean, my understanding from reading some of this literature, as as the um, as I had up here, um, the. the observation of animals in the wild often shows this sort of thing, that they seem to be attentive to these uh, uh, landmarks, which are payoff irrelevant. And that seems surprising. It would seem like they would not pay attention to that. But in fact, weaker animals, um, sometimes or smaller animals, which are usually you know a good, a good proxy for being weaker, more likely to lose the fight, will sometimes fight when they are sort of defending territory, which has been defined by some landmark, even though they won't fight when you know, they're the aggressor. And so there, se- there seems to be you know, some, some, uh, you know, something uh, real about this. I, I guess I, th- I think humans are much more capable of being sensitive to this stuff. So for me, the idea that some animals uh, could be as well uh, really emphasizes uh, its importance. Now the other question, the main question you're asking, is really about magnitude, and um, and you know this is partly why I wrote a book because I thought when it comes to focal point effect, there is nothing I can do other than to try to examine, you know, um, example after example and see if I can make a convincing argument that uh, there's 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 some effect on behavior that's going on that is not explained by sanctions and that is not explained by legitimacy. you know, Ginsburg and I did this study of uh, the International Court of Justice. And we found a remarkably high level of compliance with its decisions. But we also then we looked at those decisions and we found that uh, a lot of them are about, uh, well, in a qualitative sense, I could characterize them as fitting this this idea. That is, a lot of them are, are about, um, you you look at the stakes and you think well that wasn't worth fighting a war over this wasn't like you know your country would live or die on this dispute you know it's like the Falkland Islands or something you know it was kind of dumb to go to war over uh and so it's not a surprise that these are the kind of cases that get taken to this arbitrator that has no real sanction power and uh and then if people are willing to go to that arbitrator it's not a surprise that that they would just go, out, go along with it. So um, it's really accumulation of examples like that. Um, and, and I guess you know what I said at the end of the very last slide is uh, I would hope that I might encourage people to um, uh, think of, of ways of, uh, you know if they were thinking about these ideas, then they might, uh, they might do a better job than I, than I have of thinking about how to test them and measure the quantity. Lee.
3: So I have two kind of linked questions, or maybe it's a two-part question. Only part of it is about the fish. Um, so um, I was wondering whether your focal point theory ends up really drawing on uh, some kind of legitimacy account to some, to some extent. And I wondered that in sort of, sort of two respects. One is um, brought to mind by the fish. Uh, it seemed from the experimental design that when they took away the barrier, probably that line of gravel was like put right where the barrier was and probably the two halves were even. But um, I'm curious about what if it were really uneven, and the one set of fish discovered that the other fish, having this enormous territory, um, would, would that somehow have changed the results? Uh, and related, uh, a somewhat related point is having to do with the yellow flags you mentioned for the hospital. Right. Um, which is, uh, to what extent do we need the law to kind of certify that focal points are, are valid? Because we might imagine kind of a cheap talk story where people would put the yellow flags everywhere. Um, to avoid or you know at at the most strategic places they didn't want bombed and to what extent do we need uh, some kind of governmental legitimacy backing up the focal point
1: um so i I mean it would be interesting i mean it would be interesting to rerun the experiment in the way you've just described (laughs) of the blockhead fish Um, my understanding of animal studies is that there are a few animals that are sensitive to this sort of thing i don't think blockhead fish would be but you know, even if they were, I I, I don't have anything. I'm not, it's not my goal to kind of destroy legitimacy theory. It's just my goal to say that's not all that is going on. And and just because you see something without sanctions working doesn't mean it's working um, because of uh, legitimacy. The, uh, the field studies that I've read that talk about birds, you know, they make the point that um, you'll have these like flocks of different species that are somewhat antagonistic toward another. And they'll land, and they'll, they'll, they'll create territory in a sense. It's sort of temporary, um, but it's based on landmarks. And then what happens is the, the, the population is constantly changing. So other birds are taking off, and, uh, and, and others are landing. They're landing with like con- you know, birds of their sort. And what happens is that if you were just measuring the power dynamics. Then they would be changing a lot, and maybe the fairness and unfairness would occur because it's like, oh, now you, these birds over here started out with an equal amount of space, but now there are twice as many birds as over here, and they have an unfair, But there's a huge amount of stickiness to it, is what they observe, and so they, they and, and the stickiness is is based on you know there's this rock, and you know we stay on this side of the rock, and you stay on that side of the rock. So um, uh, so I, th- I th- anyway um, yeah, the the uh, uh, with human beings, it is you know this is this is the argument um, that people make about you know Azor Levy that he is um, being fair in the way that he um, allocates the the, uh, the right of way, uh, and so people are respecting the fairness. But you know nobody has any idea. It could easily be, he's being tipped. I mean, why wouldn't he be you know letting the good tippers go on? You know, so is that is that fair? Maybe it is. I doubt the people who are bad tippers think it's fair, um, but they do think that they're going to crash if they ignore what he says. Yes. If the
4: parties were able to negotiate beforehand, say with maybe the help of a mediator, and were able to bargain with their dollars. Wouldn't they arrive at the same conclusions, uh, you know, the same solution if they're able to bargain beforehand? But in many cases, like the, at the intersection, they can't. So really, the law is just a proxy for what people would arrive at if they were free to bargain.
1: Well, it's we definitely it it, it's so analysis. yeah. So so another way a way to put that is that look, in a lot of these dispute, a lot of these you know games, um, it would pay for each side to agree to just flip a coin. You know, let's just flip a coin. And you know, heads, you get to go first. Tails, I get to go first. But you're right; the transaction cost uh, for the drivers are too high. Right? They don't want to stop, get out of their car, agree to flip a coin, flip a coin, get back in their car. It's faster not to do that. So the third party creates this um, benefit. Now, um, I, you know what, what, uh, what Schelling what Shelling said was. That it's that, that and, and I didn't really say much about this, but there's this benefit that Azor that Levy is giving to these uh, drivers because if they all obey him, he's removing the possibility of they're both waiting or they're both proceeding and crashing. And those bad out subtracting those bad outcomes creates a big efficiency gain to them. Now, what the way he put it was interesting because he he says the most discriminated against car still benefits, and so at least I I mean I agree with him. You know that that yeah it doesn't really matter if there was a fairer way to do it. You could still be benefiting from the fact that this person is um, is is offering you a means of coordinating that is better than having no means uh, of of coordinating.
5: Efficient, basically.
1: Yeah, it could be. Uh, yeah, I mean it could be so 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 you can and you can measure like you can you can um, uh, you know you can measure like uh, what what people expect to get out of the situation if they have no coordination device um, and they're sort of mixing strategies and and then that presumably all that the the, the mediator has to do is to beat that and then you, you would go along with it. Um, it could be that a mediator would. Uh, would, do, would be so biased against you um, and that you would actually be better off without any mediator at all, and then there would be no uh, there would be no there would be no reason to there would be a reason to try to resist putting yourself in a position where that mediator could create a focal point um, that would that would be to your detriment. Um, but yeah, there's the, I mean you know traffic lights are the ultimate randomizing device, which we're all better off. Than uh, uh, by just you know in general by following. Yes. So I'm kind
6: of having trouble differentiating between the kind of uh, I guess the benefit of signaling in that if we coordinate we, ben- we uh, there's a the, there's a benefit that's why we coordinate as opposed to the deterrence model of you know if you don't coordinate you're you're penalized. Because in the coordination, you're basically giving up, you're penalized in the sense that you're giving up the opportunity cost of coordinating. So isn't it effectively the same thing?
1: Well, it's not the same thing. I don't I don't necessarily resist the language you want to use. As I said at one point, there there is a kind of sanction for failing to for having a coordination disaster of like crashing in the middle of the intersection. It's just not what we mean by deterrence which is the government imposes costs on you. It makes you pay money. It puts you in, in jail. And this is the, in the structure of the situation that uh, you, you, you know, I, you're you not the only one who suffers, by the way, if, if you crash. The other person does, too. But, but the, the, the risk of that may be enough for you to, to you know, give power to the person who is uh, offering a means of coordination. So I mean, it's, it's simply to say, you know, if, if this is a police officer in the middle of the intersection, in addition to the possibility that you will crash, you also have the possibility that you will get a ticket and the government will make you pay. So that's, that's, those are the things that I mean to separate. So.
4: I guess I I want to push back a little bit on the Pareto claim and why you agreed to it so fast. Okay. And maybe I'm misremembering the Port-au-Prince story a little bit, but but bear with me a little bit. So in the absence of the guy, we would have, you know, sort of spontaneous law, most likely, where people would alternate at an intersection. I mean, we find that very often coming out of driveways or traffic jams or whatever. And I mean, we could we call that law and focal point as well. I mean, it, it seems it's an easy one. No, it's not necessarily efficient, right? There might be you know 100 cars on, on one side and six on the other. It might be that people are more in need of one side than the other. I mean, it might be that they wouldn't agree to it. It might be that it's really inefficient, that people trying to go down the road, see the people alternating one one and they go into the Treasure Island parking lot just in order to come out of the driveway, in order to do the one one. A kind of common uh, piece of behavior. So, you know, we understand the focal point of the spontaneous law. It's just that usually law or you know some intervention has a better way to do it. You know, can overcome or provide the more efficiency or more or something. So the traffic light, for example. Now the guy I think is really a bad example because it's telling that he puts on the camouflage uniform. I mean, it would be more fun if he looked like a jerk, and unofficial, and we would test it by seeing, well, what if he did something that we're sure people would see as either unfair or something else? I mean, it would show that Schelling was wrong, I think. I mean, say he only let yellow cars through, or only let men through, not women, or, you know, he, seemed to let one side come through for 30 seconds, then he blew the whistle and stopped them, and then he gave the other side eight minutes you know, to come. I really doubt that, you know, I think we would have more than chaos. You know People would get out of the car and object and screen and all that. I mean, we would have some trouble explaining what law was there. Uh, you know, it's not even second bat. I mean, I, I sort of feel like that's where the action is. We have to wonder where law competes with the spontaneous law.
1: Well, you know, I'm not really defending spontaneous law as being better than law, even though that quote from the New York Times is this kind of romantic, romantic, like, you know, stateless void, creativity, so forth. So I'm not saying that he is the best way to solve that problem. Uh, I'm also not saying that it wouldn't matter what he did, people would obey him. I agree with you that at some point, um, if he if he just held up you know one line of traffic for half an hour at some point people would just say that's it I'm going, um, and uh, but I am I, but but I, I do want to just distinguish two reasons people might disobey him. One is the the, the the shelling reason is that you might actually you know be operating in a way the person is you're making the person worse off than they were when when you weren't there and they were going to mix strategies in some way. Um, the other possibility that Lee is saying is well no maybe as soon as you introduce the slightest ingredient of unfairness or that they were still better off they would just be so resentful of this person for being manifestly unfair and maybe that's true I mean that, that, you know if legitimacy matters then maybe maybe that's true I don't know All, what I really just want to extract from the situation is. That there is an influence on behavior that is not sanctions and not legitimacy, um, but not that you know that's that's that, that spontaneous order will figure out the best way. And I, I agree with you. If he's not there, something else will happen. I mean, you know, Schelling's example is there's a traffic light that's broken. You know, so he's imagining a single spontaneous uh, person going to the middle not a kind of long-run uh, solution that the signal is the long-run solution but the point is you obey the signal because it does um you know let you alternate in a way that makes everyone better off um, and but but i mean here's where i would say you know Schelling does give this this example that I, I i kind of agree with the line down the middle of the road you know he says you could you could probably err substantially like i wouldn't think you know, even if you introduce some sort of, you know, uh, ethnic group differences that, you know, disproportionate effect, I wouldn't think that the fact that, that the, the line wasn't exactly halfway through the middle of the road would really have much of an effect on people's compliance with it. They would, they would it's a quick visual cue for how to coordinate your driving with the other drivers on the road so you don't side swipe each other and it would have to become extremely unfair i think before you would just decide to ignore it. Yes.
7: Um, i was wondering if you could help me understand the distinction between the informational function your second kind of subcategory of expressive theory from legitimacy because it seems to me that the informational signal might depends on on a belief in accuracy so perhaps i I follow the law and take only the FDA approved drug because I think that they must know what they're doing and there's a reason that that's been approved and so that's a signal to me that it's safe. That's the information I'm getting from that law so I follow it. But that seems to me that that's similar to a claim of legitimacy that I'm assuming that the the laws are correct, that they're accurate and that they're leading me towards safety because I think the process that led to them involved expertise and consultation or, to use your examples, it involved some kind of democratic process which aggregated opinions, so it is an accurate signal of what many people believe, which again is, at least in our system, a, a legitimacy signal that many votes were calculated and many voices were heard.
1: Um, let me just describe legitimacy slightly more because uh, so I, I'm, you know there there are people like Tom Tyler who who say that what what affects compliance is people's perception of procedural legitimacy of the law, which which he uh, me operationalizes by looking at how. Um, uh, what people think of the courts and the police and how they uh, their interactions with courts and the police go for them and their family and friends. And, um, and so the idea is that if the police and courts treat you with respect then whatever the rules are you'll be more likely to obey the rules because you feel respected by these uh, parts of government. Um, the substantive legitimacy someone like Paul Robinson says that the more that criminal law uh, corresponds to your moral Intuitions, the more likely you'll comply with criminal law in those cases where it doesn't comply. So, if it ninety, you know, if 85 percent of the time you think the criminal law gets it right, then maybe the other 15 percent of the time you'll defer to the the, the criminal law. And um, uh, so, um, I, I guess I, you know, maybe it would be. Um, relevant to some, I mean, I could I could see some overlap in this, but it, it's, it seems distinct. Um, first of all, the, the harmfulness thing seems distinct. I mean, that's that's not really, we're talking about whether or not, you know, I have some belief about my exposure to secondhand smoke and how much it's harmful, and that affects how how much I will try to avoid secondhand smoke, and that might include asking people to stop <laughs> smoking around me, and so the law If if it if it increases you know if it changes my views of the harms of secondhand smoke to make me think it's more harmful, then it turns out I wind up enforcing the law because I tell smokers to stop smoking in 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 all situations, including the ones where they're they're forbidden by the law from smoking. I don't think that's I don't think that's either the procedural legitimacy because I think courts or or police treat me well, nor is it kind of the substantive that I that I care about. You know, the way that the, the, if the law normally gets the moral point right. It's just, I care about myself, I, ha- I have a belief about how harmful this is to me, and the more harmful it is, the more I'll do to, to stop it. Um, now, the attitudes, maybe, maybe that's connected, but I, I guess, um, for example, one, one of the things I, I, I claim is an implication of the attitudinal model that I describe is that local laws are likely to have a, a stronger expressive effect of this sort than national laws. And that's because the attitudes that you care about are the people uh, who, who are going to notice your behavior and t- to approve or disapprove of it. Now, the internet complicates this, but certainly for a long time it would have been, those would have been people who, your neighbors, your, the other members of your local community. So. Um, so I'm not sure it's the same, I mean, so you might, I mean, a legitimacy theorist, I don't know, might care more about the national consensus, right, because that might be closer to the truth or something, but I, I'm just imagining, you know, you just care what um, the people, you know, when you walk your dog, what the people think of you if you don't clean up after your dog, you only care about the people around when that, you know, when, when around you and your dog, so that, that, that seems like a, a different inquiry than than uh, legitimacy. The dog
5: example, one of my favorites, because that has a strong economic implication as well, which is at night, people are much less willing to pick up after their dog,
1: because nobody's around to look at them. Yeah.
5: The other question I was going to ask you is, you use the- And I,
1: just, I discovered that snow creates that problem this winter. I discovered snow. that as well, <laughs> when the snow melt. But, but yeah. part
5: of it is there are fewer people that are walking. Right. And I'm an expert since I have two dogs. As and well. I also lived in Hyde park during the period where you could not walk in any of the parks or any of where there was grass. Uh, you could not walk without uh, <laughs> stepping in something, and that's certainly not true anymore. What did you, the first uh, uh, slide, the second slide, you had the gold mining example. Right. In the, the, gold, the gold rush the yeah. gold rush in 1850. Right. Now, were you using that as an example where there were no sanctions?
1: Um, that's, a, that's, a, I, that's a complicated example. I mean, there's, there's not really government sanctions, but there yeah, there is cooperation amongst the miners.
5: There's a very good paper published in the Journal of Appropriate when Coase was still the editor. Yeah. On the, it was called, I think, Order Without Law. Yeah. And it, what it did do was there were severe sanctions. The sanctions, however, were involved being expelled from the camp. Right. Right. He also the person who wrote it also went through all of the records and found very little use of violence. That people just if they did cheat, they were simply expelled from the camp. So there was were severe sanctions. It just was not a, a formal law.
1: Right. And and I mean my I, I, I talk a lot about um, Informal sanctions, informal uh, customs, and 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 the idea that, um, in a way, the question is: What does centralized statement of the law add to what's going on? And and so I'm not I'm not at, I'm completely conceding that there is there's a certain amount of cooperation, a certain amount of sanctioning that is occurring without government as an inf- as a bottom-up sort of decentralized order without law. Um, all I'm saying is that there comes a time when things get complicated. There are ambiguities about what the rule is. There, there are, are uh, there's, there's the borderline cases. There's a question of the, you know, does this new set of facts result in a new, a new outcome? And that's where it, it becomes useful to write down um, what, uh, what the rule is, and to try to write it down in, in a clear way, and that can then become a focal point uh, to, to, that that kind of supplements the, the, the order that already exists. Um, you know, the analogy I, I have is to a dictionary, that well, language is in formal order, it can be very regularized before anyone writes it down, but when people write a dictionary, we think that that tends to have some influence on the way that people use the language afterwards, even if it's purely descriptive because people um, people have a desire to coordinate on this on the spelling and the usage of words so that they'll be understood um, so uh, so so I didn't mean to suggest that there was uh, I just meant to say there was no government sanctions in in those cases
0: time for one more question
1: yes I do.
6: so I like uh, that you have the slide of the conclusion slide yeah. up um, and I want to ask two questions that arise from that. So that, that's your recommendation. But in order to really want to act on that, what I'd like to know is uh, in terms of uh, if you compare the sanction effect of law or the sanction efficacy of law to the informative information efficacy of law, uh, how do those compare? That is to say how much, if we compare the impact that a sanction can have on behavior, uh, how, how much does the information impact of law have on human behavior? in terms of orders of magnitude, is it, is it roughly comparable? Or you know, if it's possible that, that, uh, that the information impact is second order or third order, then maybe I don't want to insert it in an economic model and I want to stick with the old ways. The second thing uh, I wonder about is you know, uh, one of the nice things about the sanctioned models of law uh, is that it's really easy to, to come with prescriptions about policy. The problem with information models about law is that you have to specify a ton more people's information sets, the games they're playing, things like that, in order to come up with uh, clean prescriptions about what the law ought to do going forward in a particular context. And so that makes me wonder, yeah, maybe there's an influence, but it's too too complicated uh, to really engage in, 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 uh, in, in normative policymaking or normative suggestions about what the law ought to be doing in specific contexts. And so I still don't, I, I should stick to the old approach.
1: Yeah, I mean, in the last chapter of the book, I mean, to take your second question, uh, where I, I talk about policy implications, I do say that I, I don't, you know, I, I t- it's very difficult to imagine, w- to, you know, wielding, trying to wield the information uh, power. Uh, I do think that there are some uh, normative implications, like, you know, the p- point I made about um, uh, drug legalization and other. Um, you know, uh, other other examples uh, where there might be sp- spillover effects, things other than compliance which might be undesirable. Um, and then, you know, this is telling you to, uh, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, that's why I point to this 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 Portuguese idea as a, as a way of trying to mute the undesired express informational effects um, of the law. More, you know, for focal point, I I think there is there are, there are ways of trying to. Uh, make policy of, of trying to use that, and I, I talk a, a bit about that. You need to know where there is potential for a focal influence of law. Uh, it helps. It helps identify when it's important to spend money on signs. You know that, and, and it, it's an argument in favor. I think in in the rules standard debate, it's one more factor in favor of rules rather than standards because it's hard to align. People's expectations with a standard much easier with a rule. That's why we see, for example, uh, traffic rules more than we see traffic standards. So, um, you know, m- much I, you know, I admit that you know there a lot of the purpose of this is not is not policy oriented, um, but really trying to understand how things operate, like international courts. Why? Why? What's really going on? Now, and the first point. Um, you know, is 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 Omri's magnitude question, and I I don't really you know uh, have um, I, I kind of I address it in various ways you know in the book to try to argue that the the effects are, are not third order effects they're more important than that. Um, but information in particular, you know, I agree it it's 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 highly contingent. That's one reason I'd say I, it, I mean identify some some things that I think. Uh, can make for discontinuous effects, but at, I say uh, in in the normal case, it's probably just you know a, a marginal effect of some you know additional compliance that is you know only a, I don't know you know a few percent more than what you would otherwise get. Um, the, uh, the the focal point effect, I think I you know I have arguments that I think there are cases in which most of the compliance you're observing is actually caused by the focal point effect in, in traffic, in international context, and some other context. And so I may you know, not persuade you, but that is at least my claim, is that there are contexts in which that effect is the main effect going on.
0: Thank you,
2: Richard.
1: Thank you.